World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Shashank Joshi, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For years, the world economy has been running cool. Supply has been plentiful. Prices have stayed low. But with America reopening and its government pumping money into the economy, there are some worrying signs that prices are rising. And pizza ought to be a simple pleasure. A little dough, some tomato sauce, a bit of cheese. But pineapple topping, delicacy or abomination? We look at how that vexed question has divided the world and broken the internet. First up, though. Yesterday, after four days of fighting, Israel's bombardment of Gaza intensified. Thousands of Israeli troops gathered on the edge of the territory. They fired shells from tanks and artillery pieces. The militant group Hamas continued to fire rockets at Israel. More than 100 people have now been killed in Gaza and eight in Israel. But even as Israel has stepped up its war on Hamas, another has been raging inside its own borders. There was mob violence in cities across the country as tensions between Arabs and Jewish residents boiled over. Israel's president, Reuven Rivlin, pleaded with citizens to stop this madness. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said nothing could justify a lynching of Jews by Arabs or Arabs by Jews. The violence within its borders and across it might be Israel's most serious challenge for decades. Israel now finds itself in, in a really tricky position. Roger McShane is The Economist's Middle East editor. It's battling Hamas in the south and some of the worst fighting uh, since 2014, while also trying to quell some of the worst civil unrest in, in decades. Roger, let's focus on that. We saw some dramatic scenes from an Israeli city called Lod overnight. What's been happening there? Is the city on the brink? Yeah, Lod is, is the scene of some of the, the worst violence we've seen. Um, you have Arab mobs fighting with Jewish mobs. I mean, the place looks kind of like a war zone right now. You have hulks of, of burned out cars uh, littering the streets. And um, the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, he's, he sent in you know hundreds of border policemen. And, and they're now sort of roaming around with assault rifles. He set a curfew. But none of this has actually been able to quell the violence. Is the violence in Lod unique or is this happening in other places in Israel as well? No, this is happening all over the country. To start, it was mostly Arabs upset about what was happening over the border in Gaza. And then in the past 48 hours, you've had far-right Jewish thugs and obviously things have escalated from there. If you just look on social media, you will see videos from any number of cities and towns in Israel of mobs sort of rampaging 
torching shops, whether they're Jewish shops or Arab shops. You know, one terrible scene, you saw a Jewish mob pull a driver out of a car and beat him nearly to death. This is on the streets in the suburb of, of Tel Aviv. So it's all over the place. Uh, are these scenes unprecedented in Israel, Roger? Yeah, I think you could say that. I mean, it's certainly the worst violence since since 2000, which is when the second intifada or, or you know, what you would call a Palestinian uprising kicked off. During that time, you had Israeli Arabs protest sort of in solidarity with the, with their kin in, in Gaza and the West Bank. You know, you had some violence then, but nothing on this level. I mean, this is unprecedented. You have Israeli leaders now warning of civil war. Prior to the Gaza offensive, you had Benjamin Netanyahu saying that this was the worst threat to Israel, worse threat than what was happening in Gaza. So everyone's taking this very seriously. As you noted, all of this is unfolding at the same time as a major bout of fighting between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. What's happening there? Have the Israeli Defense Forces, Israel's army, actually invaded the Strip yet? So there was some confusion about that last night. For days, we've had thousands of Israeli troops massing on the border. And last night, they began firing into Gaza. So far, they haven't moved in, but they could do at any time. And, you know, you have had Netanyahu come out and and say, you know, this operation is going to continue as long as necessary and and might actually escalate. And and if the aim is to degrade Hamas's rocket firing capacity, that hasn't succeeded just yet, has it? No, I mean, Hamas has fired over 2000 rockets by this point, and it has thousands more. Israel's missile defense system, Iron Dome, has successfully kept most of these rockets from hitting built up areas inside of Israel. But yeah, there's no sign that these rockets uh, are running out. And now Hamas is claiming that it's, it's firing a new rocket that can reach anywhere in Israel. So what sort of international pressure is there on Israel and indeed on Hamas to stop the violence or, or, or perhaps some sort of ceasefire? Yeah, well, it feels like the whole world is, is asking both sides to de-escalate. But perhaps some of the most important actors here are, are Egypt, which shares a, a border with Gaza and is in communication with Hamas, and a country like Qatar, which funds Hamas. And, and they are both talking to Hamas leaders and, and trying to calm things down, working behind the scenes. And then you have America, which was sort of slow in recognizing how serious a conflict this was. Joe Biden has come out and called for calm, but it, you know, it doesn't feel like he's actually putting too much pressure on Israel. There has not been a significant overreaction. The question is how we get to a point where they get to a point where there is a significant reduction in the attacks, particularly the rocket attacks uh, that are indiscriminately fired into population centers. And then there's also Mahmoud Abbas, the the Palestinian president uh, in the West Bank. And American diplomats are talking to him, but in reality, he has very little control over the situation in Gaza. Roger, all of this fighting inside Israel, in Gaza, it's all occurring at a very delicate time in Israel's domestic politics, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Israel held its fourth election in under two years in in March, and it produced another inconclusive result. And in the time since, you've had politicians trying to cobble together governing coalitions. It had seemed like anti-Netanyahu parties were about to come together and form, you know, a quote-unquote unity government. 
Now that seems to have broken down on account of the violence. You have Natali Bennett. He was seen as a potential leader of the anti-Netanyahu government. He's reportedly told his party that he's no longer going to form a government um, with the anti-Netanyahu forces, and he's actually resuming talks with the prime minister. So, Roger, just to finally zoom out and, and take a bigger look at all of this, what does all of this escalation within Israel and on its borders mean for the Israel-Palestinian peace process or whatever's left of it? I'm interested to see how this all affects Benjamin Netanyahu's sort of policy towards the Palestinians, which has been adopted by most Israeli politicians. And it's sort of a policy of trying to manage the conflict, not trying to actually solve the conflict. But it's a policy that that rests on this idea that Palestinians have become resigned to the occupation, or if not that, that Israel is able to suppress their anger. Now, I think recent events show neither of those things to be true. Roger, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's been a volatile week on Wall Street, and the jolt in markets has been mostly down to one unexpected number. And believe me, if you're standing, I recommend you sit down. It's inflation, and it seems to be everywhere you look. The price of just about everything has been going up. If this continues, the White House is going to have a, you know, a serious problem on their hands. On Wednesday, America's Bureau of Labor Statistics said that consumer prices rose by 4.2% year-on-year in April, a rate not seen since 2008. The question now is if the rise in the price of everything from airline tickets to used cars is just a temporary phenomenon as America reopens, or a sign of an overheating economy that needs cooling down. Inflation came in much higher than people had expected. And really, it's raising questions about how the US economy is recovering. Callum Williams is senior economics writer at The Economist. The biggest thing that was going on there was that oil prices were really largely responsible for the big increase in inflation from the previous month. And that's really to do with what happened about a year ago when oil prices collapsed, when lockdowns were first implemented. They've since recovered. That's feeding into the inflation figures. So part of it is what economists would call base effects. And it doesn't really reflect a genuine rise in, in price pressures in the economy. So was all of this just temporary then? Just the result of a boom in economic demand as America's economy reopens? I think a lot of it is pent-up demand. There was a lot of price rises in parts of the economy that you would expect to rise as they reopened. So airlines was one, various things to do with leisure and hospitality, that saw price increases too. I think that there are some cases that are a bit more marginal. So for instance, if you look at used car prices, which rose by about 10% in a single month in April, that's kind of partly to do with reopening because people are sort of saying, I want to go and have a summer holiday this year, but maybe I don't want to get on a plane. So it's partly that. 
But a used car thing does reflect these growing shortages of supply because a lot of car manufacturers are struggling at the moment to produce cars because they're struggling to get hold of microchips. And so what that means is there's inadequate supply of new cars. And so people are having to buy used cars instead. So, okay, that's people spending and perhaps pushing up prices. Are these increases that we're seeing also being passed on by companies themselves raising prices? Yes. So this is partly what's going on. Companies are not really able to supply in the volumes that they want to the goods and services that people are demanding. And so you're seeing this all over the US economy. The amount of stock that retailers have on hand to sell is at its lowest level ever. So we have this weird situation where basically people just don't have the supply to sell. And that is one reason why they're raising prices, because they just don't have enough. And why can't they just order more stuff? Well, they are doing that. They are ordering more stuff. If you look at surveys of companies, they are reporting that their suppliers are delayed in a lot of their shipments. And those delays are basically as high as they've been in in 40 years. Even in the best of times, if you are ordering, say, for instance, more bicycles or more dumbbells or whatever, and they're made somewhere in, say, East Asia, it it will take some time for those things to arrive because you have to put them on a ship. And that can take a few weeks to to sail to the US. But we're in this strange situation now where basically because of what happened with repeated lockdowns over the past year, you have a lot of container ships that are sort of in the wrong place globally. And so what that means is that there's a shortage of of ships in, in, in effect. And so it's become a lot more expensive and a lot slower to get goods into the US. And so what you've seen is shipping costs have absolutely soared over the past few months. This all might seem a little bit confusing for people who remember seeing numbers that showed job creation was far less than expected in April. How how does this square with that picture in the job market? So as you say, the jobs report was much worse than people had expected for April. Uh, People had been expecting that employment would rise by about a million and in fact it rose by about a quarter of that. You know, the obvious explanation is there just isn't demand. People are not demanding labour, in effect. I think the better explanation, though, is to do with another sort of supply shortage that you're seeing in the US economy at the moment, which is that the companies are finding it really hard to hire people. And again, the evidence on this suggests that, for instance, empty vacancies are basically at their highest rate ever. And so companies are creating jobs, but there aren't people there to fill them. Why do you think that is? Some people will say instinctively, oh, it's to do with the fact that the federal government is giving huge amounts of unemployment insurance out. The evidence on that is much shakier than you might think. I think there are other things going on there that mean that people aren't filling jobs. One is that if you look at the sort of jobs that are particularly hard to fill, they're in sectors like leisure and hospitality and food service and that kind of thing. And that, I think, to me, suggests that you've got a lot of people who still just don't feel comfortable about taking those jobs because maybe they haven't been vaccinated and working in a small, cramped, airless kitchen is is not particularly attractive. And I think there's something else going on here, too, which is that what you've seen in the US economy over the past few months is that there's been this kind of tremendous shaking out where jobs in some industries in some parts of the country have collapsed. So, for instance, just to take a random example, noodle shops in downtown San Francisco, if people aren't going into the office, you just don't need noodle shops in the same volumes that you once did. But lots of jobs being created in other parts of the US. So for instance, 
delivery drivers in suburban areas where people are spending more time at home. I think it just takes time for people to sort of realise where the jobs aren't and where they are. Callum, we've come out of a long period of plentiful supply, low inflation. How worried should we be by the figures that we're seeing? I mean, certainly the stock market seems a bit spooked, doesn't it? The stock market was spooked. It spooks because the investors are worried about interest rates going up. So if you have a situation where inflation is is really high, then the standard response of the central bank is to raise interest rates to try and cool demand and bring down inflation. My sense from looking at the forecasters is that most people think that these increases in inflation are going to be pretty temporary. This is a kind of reopening burst of inflation that will hopefully fade by the end of the year. And so just in short, do you think higher inflation into the medium term is, is now unavoidable? I guess it depends on what you mean by the medium term. I think the expectation is that inflation will go to a level that in normal times central banks would be uncomfortable with. However, we are in a pretty exceptional circumstance. I think it's likely that those price pressures will fade. The Federal Reserve is very clear uh, that it's its main goal is to kind of get economic activity going. So it's it's being pretty clear that it's not even thinking about raising interest rates at the moment. There are still, roughly speaking, 8 million people who were in work before the pandemic and are no longer in work or are currently not in work. I think that central bankers and policymakers more widely recognise that it's really, really important to do everything possible to create the conditions to allow those people to rejoin the labour force. Are these supply bottlenecks and price rises going to become more than just an American problem, do you think? Well, they are actually more than just an American problem right now. So if you look at, for instance, at what's going on in in China, you're seeing production costs are rising very quickly. They are certainly most acute in America. And I think that has an obvious explanation, which is that the US economy is reopening faster than anywhere else. So it stands to reason that the place where demand is strongest would also have the biggest supply shortages. So I think what that probably suggests is that people who are not in the US can expect a kind of US-style supply crunch over the coming months as their economies reopen. Callum, thank you. Thank you. GIF? Who says GIF? It's obviously pronounced GIF. G-I-F. Is soup a drink? Well, of course it is. You can put it in a cup. You drink soup. You don't eat it. Well, obviously toilet paper hangs in front of the roll, not behind it. The internet is full of polarising debates like these. There's no quicker way to divide a chat forum than by posing a seemingly open-ended question. But there's one argument which might just have broken the internet. Does pineapple belong on pizza? Few culinary questions seem to spark such a visceral response from people wherever they are in the world. Will Caldwell writes for 1843, our sister magazine. In a time when we're all so polarised and spend so much time arguing about very important things, the debate over whether pineapple should be on pizza or not has become a global pastime. Will, how did pineapple end up on pizza in the first place, given that this is something that presumably Italians would regard as a culinary war crime? It's almost got nothing to do with Italy 
whatsoever. It was the brainchild of a Greek immigrant who arrived in Canada in 1962, this guy called Sam Panopoulos. He was a fairly entrepreneurial guy, also known for having a mischievous sense of humour, so he wasn't afraid of trying something new. And then one day he decided to just open a can of tin pineapple and chuck it on top of a pizza. And what was the appeal of this combination? Well, pineapple was a really popular food at the time. Tiki culture was really popular in America as a result of soldiers coming back from the Pacific. And Hawaii was exporting pineapples to America at the rate of knots. So pineapples were fun. They're social. You know, they make a great centerpiece on the dining room table. Pineapple upside down cake was a favorite dessert. People loved pineapple. But views on which toppings were acceptable or not had not yet hardened into religious dogma. Pizza was seen as a fairly novel food and people didn't have kind of the same preconceptions about what it should be as we do now. So there were recipes in newspapers that, you know, suggested putting baked potato and sour cream on a pizza or having pizza as a dessert with sugar and cinnamon and banana on top of the melted cheese. We can see why that maybe hasn't caught on in the same way. So it was a little bit of experimentation, seems innocent enough. What do the detractors of Hawaiian pizza have against it? As the North American idea of a fast food pizza began to spread around the world, those in Italy, particularly in Naples, where the pizza originated from, began to kind of push back. They felt like this was an offence to their national cuisine um, and they wanted to reassert what a pizza should be to the world. I think also the pineapple pizza, it just seems a little silly in some way. So maybe it was an easy target because there were lots of other pizza toppings that are just as un-Italian. The barbecue chicken pizza became really popular in, in California at the same time. And, you know, we still eat that today. It's very popular, but it doesn't quite cause the same amount of offence or disgust as the idea of a pineapple. Okay, so ham and pineapple, maybe a little bit unserious, but why are people still cross about it 60 years after it was invented? What really kind of blew up this debate was the internet. As foodie culture really sort of emerged, the internet became a place for people to express that. But also the internet became a place for people to argue about things, things that matter and things that don't matter. Well, was the online debate around wine pizza characterised by the same calm reasonableness and collegiality that we've become accustomed to on the internet? It played out exactly the way all sorts of debates play out online, which is everyone quickly fell into two very polarised camps and escalated the debate to completely unreasonable but fairly hilarious levels. One of the early moments was a Facebook group that exclaimed, pineapple does not belong on pizza. And then one moment that really triggered this issue to go viral in in sort of around 2009 or 10 was a tweet in which someone tweeted a photo of a slice of pizza covered entirely in pineapple, which just seemed to drive people completely insane. But it wasn't really about food, was it? This was about something bigger. Oh, completely. I I think by this point, this was about debating for the fun of it. This was about performative polarisation. This was playing at internet arguing. The more hyperbolic you could be, the better you were playing this game, really. Well, let's settle the issue once and for all on the intelligence. Does pineapple belong on pizza? (laughs) Um... I have complete respect for everything the Italians have done for cooking, but I really think that it's not such a bad thing. Listeners can send their angry letters into us online. Will, thank you very much. Thank you. 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our senior producers are Chris Impey, Hannah Mourinho, Duncan Barber and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren and assistant producers Jason Hoskin and Abisoya Osandero with extra help this week from Emily Elias. Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd-Evans. See you back here on Monday. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.